All right. Um, where we were, verse 35. Uh, we've gotten to the point where uh, Jesus is talking about our words, what we speak. And the reason, if you will remember, that we're here is he had just addressed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees had said the things that they said, and this is more of a continuation going deeper into the subject. So he's pretty much getting past what the Pharisees said, and now he's giving a general teaching that all of us need to know, uh, especially about what we say and, why, and, most importantly, why we say it. I mean, you, you, there's, there could, there's a lot of things that sound nice that we don't say for good reason <laughs> uh, that, that is basically sin. But, and there's a lot of times when people say the wrong thing, but they said it with the right reason, which is, you know, it was just a mistake. And part of being a mature human being is knowing the difference between the two and giving people a little bit of space for that. There are people, honestly, who just look to be offended, undoubtedly. Uh, they're looking for reasons to... Well, actually, there's a whole movement out there that seems to be looking for a reason to be offended. But there are certain people who just do not feel important unless they're offended. And no matter what you say, you're going to you know, get them mad at you. And you know, sooner or later, if you say enough words around them, they will find a reason to be mad at you. And, well, <laughs> I don't care, but... <laughs> I mean, you learn um, to care about them, but not to care about their idiosyncrasies, you know, uh, not to let it affect the fact that they're mad at you when you didn't do anything that you intended, uh, not to let it affect you. But anyway, here's what Jesus had to say, and he's going on about the same thing. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil, and he's still referring to words. Words are the proof and the pudding, uh, all of them together, not just some of them, the totality. And it's really hard. Um, if you're married, it helps a little bit if you've ever been married because your words get said in totality around somebody who hears them all. Uh, you, you can't just, well, all of us say words when we can that we think people want to hear. Uh, most of the time. Well, one of the beauties of family is that, uh, well, they're the mirror that reflects your words back to you. They're the people that uh, whatever you is in your heart is going to come out in your words in front of them. And that gets a little tough sometimes. But the deal is you're going you're gonna to hear their words too. So it's not fatal if you both screw up in front of each other because you know you're screwing up and you know that's part of the deal and that you won't change until you see you need to be changed and one of the ways you see you need to be changed is hearing what you said um you, you can't look at your heart but you can hear your heart not beat but what's in there um i try not to judge too harshly the words one speaks under great stress that's another thing uh as I know, I would do the same. Stress is all that's needed to be added to have us speak what we really are. Um, I don't judge it. I listen to it, what people say under stress, because when they're stressed, all that facade of trying to act nice and say nice things starts to fall away, and what's really in their heart comes out more when they're deeply stressed. 
So I try very hard. Well, all the years of being a cop, I've dealt with so many people who are under stress. I mean, under deep stress. So I've just learned to just understand that's what it is. And that is what people are. And people are going to say that. You know, I've heard, you know, I've had officers, you know, yell at people who were, you know, somebody they love just got shot and they're just spouting stuff, you know, and they get mad. I'm just, dude, leave them alone. You know, their, their kid just got shot. You know, you got to give them some. And no matter what your decorum is, whatever facade you put on, it comes down when you face stress. The facade can't handle it. It's like a storm that blows off. And for everybody, that's a different level. But what I'm saying is listen to it for yourself. When you're facing a trial and you're facing something stressful uh, and you hear it, listen for it because you will get a glimpse at your heart that you won't get any other way when you stop trying to hide what's in there. Uh, We do it instinctively. I don't even think it's something you do consciously. Uh, We try to make ourselves look as good as possible. Well, God sees past that. He, he's never fallen for any skullduggery or, or any shading that we put on ourselves. It, it never affects him. He knows. It's we who need to know. I do not know the depth of my evil. I What I've seen and what I've encountered, I do not like. And it every day I am more and more assured that I am simply a sinner saved by grace. I have nothing to offer him other than the fact that I appreciate him and love him. That's all I got. Because life keeps proving to me uh, that I'm not as good as I thought I was. I'm not. Um, And yet, he gives me the hope that I know that. When the nails were driven into his hands, he, he knew this was me, and he was willing to invest the time and the effort. By effort, I mean putting me into the stress so that that's how this sanctification thing works. Once again, from what I said on Sunday, you cannot get away from this. From the furnace of affliction, God refines his people. That has never been negated anywhere in Scripture. That's how God does it. How does he sanctify us? Through affliction, through trials. Because in those trials, you see what you are, Hopefully you repent from what you are when you see it. And then when you repent from it, what changes is you don't want to be like that anymore. That is how we get sanctified. I don't know of any other way. At least I know of no other way that I've been able to do this. I, I just... Every time I get comfortable and I start thinking, I'm pretty darn good. It's just, man, it's gone. You know, all the Lord has to do is show me two or three things in a couple of moments and hear myself say something. Uh, And it's usually to someone who I feel safe saying anything in front of, which would be family. You know, uh, the the stuff you say at home (laughs) is the stuff that's real. Uh, You know, in front of the people who you know aren't going to leave you if you say something dumb or you say something harsh. That's the value of them. Uh, I'm still amazed by myself. I, I just am. Um, and, the, and of course, even the Lord will help me out of that sorrow. You know, okay, Jeff, I've always known you were like that. We're working on it. You know, 
get up, brush yourself off, take a step forward. You know, it, it's little by little. We are on the slow cooker. <laughs> you know, I, I know there are other people who do it other ways that have had traumatic things happen and it changed their lives dramatically all at once. That's not how it happens with me. I am still fighting the fights. And once again, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. And my words prove that to me constantly. Um, and like I said, because of that, I try not to judge too harshly what people say when they're under stress. I know that they have to see the things that are in them. And I have to give them the space. and the Well, especially as a pastor. Because I get to hear it more than other people get to hear it. Um, and I've learned, no matter what they tell me, it's all part of the process. You know, uh, never go, ooh, ick. You know, <laughs> never do that. Um, I'm in no position to ooh, ick anybody. I'm just not. Stress wipes away the facade of civility uh, that we all constructed over the years. We've learned how to be acceptable uh, if we want to be. What I call church words. You know, when you go to church with the things you say in church, I try not to do that. I try, to, I try very hard to just keep how I talk, how I talk, you know, within the limits of what's acceptable, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I never make fun of people or where they're from. I never... <laughs> this is tough with Mikkel sitting here. <laughs> The only way it can be dealt with, repented of, is for us to first, for it be revealed to us in an undeniable manner. Hearing then, reflecting on your words is part of the journey to conformity to the image of Christ. You can only manipulate your words to paint a false image of your own heart for so long. Sooner or later, what you really want to say, you will say to someone. You will try to find someone who's safe to say it to. You will seek them out. You will seek someone who you believe, let's say there's someone you really don't like, and you want to say bad things about them. You will find someone else who you believe doesn't like them as much as you don't, and then you'll feel safe saying it to them, and it's, it's like this shark feeding frenzy, and they'll say it back, and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, and then after it's done and you go home and you sit down and you go, oh, what did I just do? Well, what you just did is revealed your own heart, not only to yourself, but to somebody else. And that's another thing you got to deal with. You know, that's where you're saying, Lord, forgive me and lessen the harm I just caused. I, I need you to do that. Fix what I broke, you know. And so I don't know if that ever goes away. You do it less and less. And I think you... You, what I've learned is I do it, but I do it with more class. <laughs> I gossip with more class than I ever gossiped before. It's almost like I'm not gossiping, you know, but I am. It's like I think I got away with it or something, you know, and that's never the idea. We don't want to get away with anything. We want it all dealt with here so we don't take it there. Um. Judge as you wish to be judged is the best way I'll put it. When other people do it, or if they're talking about you, you got to let it go. Uh, realize that they're fighting the same fight you're fighting. And if you did something, of course, address it. But if you didn't, then just let it go. Jesus goes on, verse 36, But I tell you that every, every careless word that people speak, 
they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. Now that's, that's give you cause to wonder. Careless, uh, argos, A-R-G-O-S is the Greek word. It denotes uh, yielding no return is the thrust, the thrust behind it. Uh, because of inactivity, it didn't mean anything. It didn't do anything. Um, idle words that uh, is profitless, um, especially when, well, they're talking about the things of the kingdom here and realize the things they were saying to Jesus that Jesus is addressing. This isn't saying that, hey, have a good day, or how about them buckos? Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to judge you for saying, how about them buckos? He may judge you if you root for them, but... Um, yeah, just remember what brought the topic up. They said Jesus was empowered by Satan. And what Jesus is saying, those words aren't idle. You know, you may have just said them to say them, but God heard them. <laughs> you know what I mean? They count. And so he's, you know, remember that. Remember, believers will not be judged for sin and then face punishment. Jesus is saying all the words reflect the speaker's heart so no words are meaningless they all have a meaning uh, it didn't mean it's not acceptable believers will be judged for reward either way our word gets addressed our words get addressed because they're an accurate picture of our hearts at any given time our words are a polaroid of our heart push the button when you say it and that's where it is. And I think the beauty of it is when we sit before the Lord, he's going to show you the Polaroids in progression. And hopefully what it shows will be more and more palatable as the Polaroids of your life come along with your words. Um, to give an account for, it says, it means you're going to answer for them. Well, let's think about what they just said that they just threw out there flippantly you know, you're doing it because, you know, you're from Satan. i got a text from Mark. Let's see what's up. Oh, good. Harry's surgery uh, went very well, and he's recovering. So I just, you guys want to know. Harry, the piano player from um, West Homestead. He had a surgery, and it went well. Okay, give an account for it. So there you re when, when you speak them, you own them. They stick to you. They haven't gone anywhere. They don't go off into nowhere. They just go into your pocket, and you're going to have to empty your pockets in front of God. So remember that. Maybe I should remember that more than any of you. This is not saying not to enjoy oneself or that humor or trivia is wrong. As always, it's why you say what you say that matters. There's nothing wrong about talking about sports. There's nothing wrong about talking about a car. There's nothing wrong about talking about the house you just bought. It, it, no, there's no evil in that. If you're trying to lighten the mood, lift someone's heart, or even take their minds off what's overwhelming them, then your words are not careless. They have a purpose. Scripture makes that clear. It's why you're saying what you're saying. Humor can be medicine for a wounded heart, or it can be a mocking poison for the weak at heart. Uh, if you're going to use it, you got to be responsible for it. It doesn't matter if you want to be responsible for it. He's making you responsible for it. Uh, like all other words, you will answer for them. Human, humor is a powerful way to trivialize what is actually trivial. 
it's a way of making unimportant things remain unimportant. Make fun of the things that don't matter is a way of saying it's trivial. It is also a dangerous way to trivialize what is not trivial. You're responsible to know which one. And sometimes you have to learn how to do that and which one matters. Proverbs 17.22 says a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says a time to weep and a time to laugh. So when Jesus is saying about a word's, um, what's his actual word, careless, he's not talking about this. He's talking about what they said about him, you know, just to make a, to win an argument. And uh, no matter how they meant it, that's how God heard it. Psalms 126, 1 through 2, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things. Uh, man, this is not him saying don't have a good time. This is not him saying don't laugh. It's free. Enjoy it. <laughs> you know what I mean? As long as nobody's getting hurt or you don't have a mean intention behind it, man, enjoy yourselves. And, you know, and one thing I always appreciate about you guys not only do you put up with my strange sense of humor, most a couple of you have a pretty strange sense of humor too. So I, I really do appreciate it. Ephesians 4, 5, uh, 4, 5, 4 through 6. Now it says, There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse gesturing, which are not, which are not fitting. Okay, when it says which are not fitting, it's leaving it up to you to decide which is not fitting. It, everybody should know if something's fitting or not fitting, um, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you are asking yourself, should I say this? And this comes from experience. If you ask yourself, I wonder if I should say that. No. No. Don't say it. If you are asking yourself, should I say that? The answer is almost always no. Go and think about it some more. Uh, trust me. You can learn it. You could believe me, or you can learn that one the hard way. Uh, if it hurts someone, it's not fitting. When you choose to use humor, you have to take responsibility for it. When it says empty words, what it's saying is words that carry no truth. Um, they may sound good. They may be enticing, but they're hollow. There's nothing in them. You know, yeah. It's like finding a wallet, a beautiful wallet, and having no money in it, you know. For your words, uh, for by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Well, we should know why that is, because what did he say? Your words show your heart. It, it, basically, because your words show your heart, the words tell you what you're going to get. The judgment of our words will lead either to acquittal or sentencing, or in the case of Christians, reward or not reward. Uh, blessing or a blessing you lost out on. Uh, wow. I've said a lot of words. 
know, in my 64 years. There's going to be a lot to sift through. If you say you're a sinner, if you call upon the name of Jesus to save you, you are justified by his blood and grace, by the words that you spoke. If you say you have no need of Christ, these words will condemn you, i.e., the two criminals on the cross, justified and condemned by what? We know which one's justified. We know which one's condemned, the two criminals on the cross, by what? By the few words they spoke. We know. God surely knows. Do you get what I'm saying? That's how powerful they are. What was in their hearts under great stress. I mean, the boys were heading out the door. There was nothing left, to, no reason for a facade anymore. What they spoke was directly what their heart was. And one was justified and one was condemned by their words. And we know it. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, verse 38, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> I love this. Jesus, they say something really stupid. Jesus calls them to account for saying something really stupid, saying, oh, dude, you should have never said that, you know. And then he goes on and explains that their own stupidity and all the words they've spoke, ever spoke to him, you know. <laughs> Don't be a Pharisee is number one. Um, every time they ever spoke to him, what he said in these last couple of verses applies to every time they ever spoke to him stupid unthought words that just anyway so in the middle of this what should be a uh, something that calls their heart to repentance <laughs> they just then they say this then some of the scribes said to him teacher we want to see a sign from you <laughs> just blew it off man you know this great truth that will change their lives that should bring them to repentance eh, you know it's just like what did he say something you know so they just changed the subject incredibly uh, note that they blew past what Jesus just said about their words, and they spoke words that proved the point he just made. <laughs> More idle stuff. Their question would have been legitimate if they had actually seeking God, not seeking a means of negating Jesus' ministry. Signs are the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Never underestimate why miracles happened. I've said this time and time again. Miracles, public miracles occurred so that everyone would know that he is the son of God, so that his words would have force. The miracles happen for the words. And what they're sounding like, they want to see that. But he's up there. He's up north where he's done all of his miracles. This request was made on a constant basis, and Jesus' miracles occurred on a constant basis, but not at the command of the Pharisees. If, if a, a poor beggar came up with a crippled hand and said, could you heal me? Sure. But when the religious leaders of the entire nation came up and said, can you do a miracle? He went like, eh. Yeah. He came to heal the sick. Yeah, get, get away from me, man. I, I'm not here for you to entertain you. And, and of course, I take you back to Herod, you know, the old Jesus Christ superstar moment. Prove to me you're divine. Change my water into wine. You know, walk across my swimming pool. You know, and uh, it's just a show. I don't want to change. I don't want spiritual truth. I want to see something. Perform for me. Be the genie that the faith rubs and does what I want it to do. It, it has never been God. Jesus shows them no favor. If they follow him, they would see signs. They did not acknowledge uh, he did not acknowledge their authority, 
by performing for them or their need. What they wanted was something different. Uh, the request was... They were trying to control him for their own Oh, absolutely. Purposes. Absolutely. Well, and, and let's... That was just not going to happen. And let's say if he says to them, uh, we want you to do a miracle, and then he does it. Well, that gives them clout with the crowd. Oh, he can control Jesus. The request was legitimate theologically. You know, they, you know, the miracles would be done so you would know who he was. Their reason for the request was not. That's the difference. John 6.30 says, So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? See, that's what you should ask. What work do you perform? This was asked of him in a synagogue in Capernaum. Right after Jesus fed a large crowd with those couple of fish and a couple of loaves. Then he walked on water, crossed over the sea, and landed on the other side. After he did so, the folks crossed the sea and asked to see a sign again. In verse 14, after Jesus fed the crowd, the people said this. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet. Not a prophet, the prophet, who is to come into the world, the one, the Old Testament, the Messiah. So it worked. The people got it. The peasants, the, the poor people, the people he fed got it. The Pharisees, they knew it happened. Let's show me another one. They weren't saying, he just fed all these people. He walked on water, and they're saying, show me another sign. What the people said is exactly what miracles are meant to do. But this was said in Capernaum, a town where Jesus' miracles were seen, but they gave no response of faith. Jesus had openly rebuked Capernaum. He did not perform a miracle at their request. Of their, instead, he told them that he was the bread of life, and this confused them. They said, do a miracle, and he said, I'm the bread of life. <laughs> you know, to, it was much he just like turned the tables on them. And what they did for his talk about your words, and they said, he gave this beautiful instruction of life about your words. And he said, okay, yeah, show us a miracle. And so Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. <laughs> it's, you know, think about it. And this confused them. Matthew 11, uh, just the last chapter, about what he said about Capernaum. And, and remember how much time he spent there. It was his base of action. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if this if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would remain to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than you. We love the land-based Sodom and the homosexuals and all that other stuff and think of them as the greatest evil on the planet. Jesus Christ is saying they are not. Understand the depth of what is expected when miracles occur. They don't happen without an expected response. Be careful what you pray for. The prayer should be, show me what I could handle, Lord. You know, because there comes something expected. And when you consider that Capernaum is going to be, the people of Capernaum are going to fare far worse, it says, than the people of Sodom, who he blew up. 
It's because of their lack of faith. I showed you everything. Sodom, I didn't show anything. I just saw their evil and I addressed it. John 2, 18 through 19. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as the authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. <laughs> That's how he dealt with them, man. You know, th when they did it, this is the I'm the bread of life. Just, I'll raise this. And of course, that meant nothing to them then. This is directly after Jesus kicked the money changers out of the temple. Uh, you know, who are you to think that you could kick the money changers out? Show us a miracle. This is after miracle, after miracle, after miracle. Uh, the Jewish leaders, not the people, asked Jesus to prove his authority to do what he just did. Jesus declined. He just kicked them out. And Herod in Luke uh, 23, 8, this is the same thing. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and hoping to see some signs performed by him. Not for spiritual reasons. He's Herod. This dude's messed up. He just wants to be entertained. Eh. So we have to ask ourselves and be very careful that in a more spiritual facade, a religious way, that we're not doing the same thing. That we're not creating an environment where we're trying to make supernatural things happen. And I'm not a big one to uh, lambaste the Pentecostal movement. It is what it is. But I've seen it there. Um, I never appreciated it. Um, trying to conjure up miraculous things. If you've spent any time You've seen it happen. Verse 39, responding to them, show us a sign. But he answered them and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. <laughs> craves for it. They really, that's, they, don't want to, they don't want to hear a truth. They want to see a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but a sign of Jonah the prophet. And of course, once again, when these things are said, um, they don't get it. Many signs had already been given. They refused to accept what the signs proclaimed. They stated, well, we want to see more. They wanted to be entertained by the signs, not be held responsible for the faith and the belief that the signs demanded of them. They knew what they had already seen, and they knew what the demand was. So what they were doing is they were trying to uh, justify their own unbelief. Well, I need to see one more. Jesus speaks to the entire generation by saying, this is what an evil and adulterous people do. They crave for signs, not the truth that the signs point to. Jesus repeated this statement in Matthew 16. Jesus uses two examples from Scripture that they all knew would make his point. Jonah for repentance and the queen of the south for seeking wisdom from God. Of course, the three days in the belly of a well, what he's telling He's forecasting. He's blowing past them, and he's speaking to us here in 2023. He is literally saying those things because he knows we are going to be sitting here thousands of miles away, thousands of years later, and we will know exactly what that sign of Jonah means. So let's stop and think about Jonah for a minute. Whether you see it in an allegory or a real thing, it just means this. That book is there. And that happened to Jonah so Jesus could say this.
so that Jesus could say this and it everybody would know that it applied directly to what was coming. Hindsight is twenty twenty. In hindsight, it's an oh wow. But when he said it, they went, what? It's the same with, you know, tear down this temple in three days, I'll build it back up. They're going, what? But realize that Jonah was not an account that Jesus used. Oh, there's that account that applies here. No, that account occurred so Jesus could use it. He wasn't in the fish's belly two days. He wasn't in the fish's belly four days. He was in the fish's belly three days. And then he came out. Do you understand the scope and the gravity of how big and grand this is? How thought out this is throughout the ages for us so that we would have this. Uh, crave. It has a negative connotation here. It's like craving a drug. You know, I got to have it. Uh, and then he goes on. For just as Jonah has three days and, the, and nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They have no idea what that means. Jesus speaks confusing prophecy that will later be seen as profound. Confusing then, it will be profound in just a little bit of time. Amen. And it is. It really is. This also speaks to the reason the account of Jonah is in Scripture to speak to this moment. It was given then to be used here. That's how far God thinks ahead and how complex his thinking is. God isn't up there just reacting to everything that happens, throwing lightning bolts or saving somebody. There is a grand plan that is just plowing through history. I mean, it, unstoppable. We know how it's... We know how it's going to end because he told us. He wasn't kidding. Jonah didn't happen then and Jesus used it. It happened so that Jesus could use it. Jesus didn't just think of it. Jesus caused it beforehand. This is epic stuff. Whether he caused it to be written or whether he caused it to actually happen, I won't argue that with anybody. It doesn't matter. The point is the lesson, the truth that comes from it. This is the second time Jesus publicly alluded to his uh, coming death and the resurrection after three days. Uh, John 2.19, destroy this temple in three days, I will build it up. John 16.21, he proclaims to his disciples from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on a third day. Boy, it can't get any clearer than that. He just sat down and told them and they were still surprised. He said, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to persecute me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise up in three days. And they still, you know, the Jonah account. Jonah 1, 17, uh, 1, 17 and 2, 4. What in the heck did I just say? Yeah, that's right. One, yeah. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Then the next part. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again 
towards your holy temple. Take that last line. This is Jonah saying, I've been expelled from your sight. Lord, oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. I'm going to see you again. Wow. You know, in hindsight, it makes sense. Uh, the men of Nineveh, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation. Uh, you know what? I'll quit there. Uh, we'll, we'll quit at 41. Uh, no sense in... Yeah, I'll do it. Never mind. We drove all this way. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So he's still tying it together. Can you see that Jonah was is in the Old Testament for this moment. I mean, Jesus just lays it out like, uh, doubtful that this means God will allow the Ninevites to take over his function of judgment, uh, but rather their example will be used to condemn them. This is what could have happened. It's what should have happened with you. You should have repented. Jesus all used Sodom in the same manner when speaking of Capernaum. Nineveh repented when Jonah preached the message that God gave them. It never says that he used miracles. Capernaum refused to repent when God personally. Jonah preached to them, and they repented. God came, did miracles, preached to them, and they refused to repent. I mean, do you see why Jesus has an issue with them? Uh, Jonah 3, 4 through 5, And Jonah began to go through the city uh, one day's walk and cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And that's what repentance means. Hold on one second. And yes. Yeah, I'm at Bible study, honey. She said, hi, everybody. <laughs> hi. <laughs> Can you pick me up? It's raining. <laughs> we'll leave there. Um, he's the next, uh, the Queen of Sheba, uh, the Queen of the South. I guess that's who, the, who they mean. But uh, So we've seen the importance of words in our hearts. We've also seen the importance of responding to what God puts in your path. And he puts a lot of stuff on all of our paths. You could, it's, it's your call um, to grab hold of it and to let it do what it was sent to do, bring it to repentance. Um, it's all serious business. And all of it is purposeful. Every part of it was known. Uh, his plan is incredible. And all of this, everything we just read, should do two things for us. One, it should bring us to repentance, especially the talk about the words. I mean, it, it should bring you to the point where you examine your life a little closer than you did before. And it should also give you the great hope that he is perfecting you. Because the battle can wear you down. The battle I fight with me can wear me down to the point where it seems almost hopeless. You know, the thing you thought was gone shows up five years later like i thought i'd never had a deal you know you say something or do something that you it doesn't matter what it is you you know and you go oh my goodness did i waste five years nope none of it's wasted god uses time just he orchestrates it 
The time in your life is his, and he uses it exactly as it should. And I know the despair that you can feel from failure. Um, that has a purpose, too. It makes you want to win. It makes you want to rise up and be what you should be. Um, so you look to the scriptures that tell you you will be. You're still in the oven. It's still cooking. Um, take it seriously, but don't let it overwhelm you. I, I know how this ends. You win. Uh, it is hard. There's nothing harder than denying the flesh and walking in the spirit. Everything in us does not want to do that. Everything we were born with. And yet, God methodically never stops. No matter how low you fall, he's right there with you. Um, sometimes we need to do that. And, you know, there are times it can be a little bit overwhelming. And maybe I'm re-preaching the sermon from Sunday, but there's a reason I preached it. it it's true. Uh, there are times when you just need to stop and see exactly what it is he has coming for you, the glory that is coming. Um, it's worth the fight. It really is. Anything else? Anything anybody wants to say, criticize, comment on, anything like that? Verse 42. We're zipping through there. My goodness, we did verse after verse. 42, page 29. Anything, anybody? Well, let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your word. As always, Father, we just ask that your word find a home in our hearts and change us. And Lord, we are so grateful for this fellowship. We're so grateful for your word. And I just ask that you watch over my brothers and sisters. Make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate. And help them to glorify your name, what they think, what they do, and what they say. In Jesus' name, amen.